I think mostly because of neuroimaging. So we now have a lot more ready access to neuroimaging uh, in non-medical practices and in non-medical forums. So historically, neuroimaging, very expensive, fMRIs, MRIs, EEGs, you know, PETs, MEGs, they all stand for different things. We don't need to get into the physics of it. But the idea is, is that that imaging had historically been an expensive thing. And so we reserved it basically for medical and, and pharmaceutical and, and sort of healthcare purposes. And I think what, what, where we've transformed is that as technology has increased in its innovation in the world, I mean, everything from smartphones to, you know, your, your fridge at home probably has a smart capacity internet of things. The idea is, is that acceleration of that has also accelerated uh, the, the variable use of neuroimaging for other purposes as well. Hey guys, before we get started, I want to tell you about today's show sponsor, Carta. Carta simplifies how startups manage equity, track cap tables, and get valuations. Go to carta.com slash syndicate to get 10% off and learn more about how they can help you with managing your complicated cap table and keeping investors happy. As you can probably tell, I'm pretty big on health, longevity, and human optimization. That's why I'm pumped to tell you about our special 10% off offer from Onnit, the brainchild of UFCs, Joe Rogan, and Aubrey Marcus for elite performers. They're running a Willy Wonka style prize giveaway where everybody gets a golden ticket. Everybody wins on every order of Alpha Brain, a super nootropic stack that they sent me. I love it with my morning coffee and it comes with the potential to win an all expenses paid grand prize round trip for two to Onnit's hardcore headquarters in Austin, Texas, $1,000 store credit, $500 cash and more. Plus again, every bottle of Alpha Brain comes with a special bonus from the Onnit team. Just visit disruptors.fm slash alpha to save 10% off alpha brain or anything else from their awesome store. Again, disruptors.fm slash on it if you want hardcore subs to live a high performance life. Today's episode is brought to you guys by my 15-step guide to scalable, Series A-worthy growth and marketing. If you're building a startup aiming for a billion-dollar outcome or a solopreneur looking for a sustainable six, seven, or eight-figure business, get my free guide, which you can grab at mattward.io free, which walks you through the best, most proven tactics to acquire and retain customers, applicable for freelancers up to Fortune 500. If you want to grab that, plus bonus hacks and tips to build your business and more, visit mattward.io slash free. And if you need help or ever want to grow your business faster, I coach a handful of hardcore winners building businesses I believe in. You can reach out right on the site, mattward.io for more. And now let's get on with the episode. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds, share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. We talk a fair bit about aging and longevity on the podcast. It makes sense. There's one thing that you can disrupt. Well, life expectancy, living longer and being healthier is definitely one of them. I know you and I and most of us would give almost anything, not anything, but almost anything to have longer, more meaningful lives. And there's one thing that I know I want, a functioning brain. I don't want to be senile at the end of life because if I'm living to 153, which is my goal in the last 40 years, I've got dementia. That kind of sort of totally sucks. Well, today we've got someone who's diving deep into just that. We've got Dr. Bryn Weingart on the program. She's a neuroscientist and psychology and marketing expert. She's an award-winning professor, a speaker, and she frequently gives talks on the topics of persuasion, productivity, 
the neuroscience of leadership, the science of brain aging, preventing neurocognitive decline, and much, much more. That combined with over a decade of corporate marketing experience for companies like Fizzer, Nestle, Johnson & Johnson, and her work as a faculty member at numerous universities, her background and insight into the brain is fascinating, and we'll dive right into that. In our episode, we discuss the science of brain aging and expertise, why your brain loses neurons but gains skills, why advances in sensor technology are driving neuroscience and helping us understand more, deeper, and better about the brain and what it means to be human, What Brin's learned about the differences between brain shape and brain function? Some of the most common myths about your brain? The actual percentage of your brain you use? It's not what you think. And how nutrition and epigenetics affect brain performance and health? These are things that matter to all of us. We want to be cognitively healthy long into life because, well, if you're not, you're kind of a couch potato not able to do anything. And it's horrible for those around you when they have to see you decline. I don't know if you've ever gone through this with a parent, a grandparent, someone that you know personally, but it's just, it's gut-wrenching to see that person suddenly go back to being a child. On this episode, we try to help you better understand why that happens and how you can prevent it. So I hope that you guys enjoy this. Before we get started, got a really quick announcement. The Disruptors is partnering up with Aubrey de Grey to offer you guys a free, limited-time, signed copy of Ending Aging, Aubrey's book. If you want to get a copy of that, you can enter into our sweepstakes. Just go to disruptors.fm slash aging, that's A-G-I-N-G, aging, and you can register to win this book. There's a lot of different ways that you can enter and get more chances to win from following us on Twitter to subscribing on YouTube and a whole bunch of other things that you can do. But if you're interested in getting a free signed copy of Aubrey's book, go to disruptors.fm aging and you can enter to win there. Aubrey was a really interesting guy. It was incredible having him on the podcast to be able to have one of the leading longevity researchers in the world. The giveaway will be running from January 29th to February 5th. So you have one week from the release of this podcast episode, essentially, to enter. Make sure that you do that and take action if you want to get this book signed from Aubrey himself right to you. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash aging for more details and how you can register. And of course, no purchase necessary. But what if you're listening to this after the sweepstakes has ended? Don't worry, we're actually partnering with a lot of the past authors on our podcasts to offer some free books for you guys. So while it may not be Aubrey's book, if you go to disruptors.fm slash giveaway, whatever is the most recent giveaway that we're doing now, if there's one that's currently running live, you can register to win right there. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash giveaway. And now let's get on with the episode. Without further ado, I give you Bryn Weingard. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. How did you get interested or obsessed with the brain? Yeah, it's a funny question. I've been asked it many times. I don't know. It's really I very, very young. And here's why. Even as a, as a child, I remember feeling a certain frustration uh, with this idea that there was this computer running each and every one of us, but that they were all different, right? So no computer was similar, was very clear because there were different actions and behaviors and words coming out of people's mouths. Um, and that computer very clearly was everything about that person. So controlled all action and reaction and motivation, personality, destiny. And that idea pervaded even my youngest memories, my very earliest memories. And that's really what I put myself in service of trying to figure out was, you know, and it turns out that thing's called the brain and it's the most complex supercomputer known to man. And it's, you know, it's amazing. It's this amazing thing. But that was sort of the the undergirding motivation, if you will, was, you know, just this wild idea that we have this, this computer that we just don't know enough about. And then I got 
studying it formally later in life, and you realize how little we know still. I mean, it's amazing how technology has really, and and, neuroimaging has really helped us understand more, but it's still, you know, there was this in the 1920s and 30s, they were this instrumentalist, they were called, which really, they were the Pavlovian theorist, right? The B.F. Skinner and Pavlov, who just thought that there were just simple cause and consequence to every action and behavior. And of course, we figured out that that's not true. But what's interesting is that, you know, they used to refer to the mind, to the brain as the black box of the mind. And what's interesting is to this day, neuroscientists often just revert to that very rudimentary thinking when it comes to the stuff we just still don't know about the human brain. And so that someone once saw me talk and they said, it seems to me that your your search for answers about the brain is like many people's deep space odyssey or deep sea dive. Like it's just kind of this endlessly fascinating, you keep finding new crevices, new things to investigate. And through your eyes, I see the passion, like through your eyes, I see why that's interesting. And historically, I think it just, I think he was an engineer and he just historically had not thought the brain very interesting. And so that was his comment. And I thought it was very interesting kind of perspective. And yeah, so I mean, I'd love, I hope that's a, it's a very windy answer to the fact that it's just always been with me. I'm fascinated. It's interesting. I want to dry, dive into the black box stuff in a little bit. But first, are you left-brained or right-brained? How would you categorize yourself? Yeah, so I'm neither. And it's been dispelled and disproven in the literature. So there is no real lateralization of function. And that hemispheric notion uh, has really been, you know, as neuroscientists, we don't believe in that, especially not for females who have a very large corpus callosum, it's called, which is the super highway of neurons that connects the two hemispheres. If in females, it was like a German Autobahn, eight lanes wide. In a man, it would be more like an old country road. So, you know, a little bit different. However, that actually allows males to uh, super focus their uh, neuronal networks and to have better actual cognitive focus. And then in females, we see very dispersed patterns. And so, again, one of the things I love about the brain is that your brain is your creation. You literally neurofunctionally and neuroanatomically create it with your thoughts. And it's always changing. It's always in flux. It's never static. And what we find is that for everything we ever thought was lateralized so that you'd be more creative, you'd have more activity on the right side. And if you were more auditory and mathematic, you'd have more activity on the left side. For every rule, there are more exceptions than there are uh, proven cases. So that's been largely dispelled. And once that happens, then the rule kind of just, if you believe in 10% of a religion, then it probably doesn't make sense to continue believing. So you're diving into this field and we're learning more and more, especially as the technology is accelerating. What are the big reasons for that? Why are we, why is now seem like an era of neuroscience when it didn't before? Yeah, it's a good question. I think mostly because of neuroimaging. So we now have a lot more ready access to neuroimaging in non-medical practices and in non-medical forums. So historically, neuroimaging, very expensive, fMRIs, MRIs, EEGs, you know, PETs, MEGs, they all stand for different things. We don't need to get into the physics of it. But the idea is, is that that imaging had historically been an expensive thing. And so we reserved it basically for medical and and pharmaceutical and, and sort of healthcare purposes. And I think what what where we've transformed is that as technology has increased in its innovation in the world, I mean, everything from smartphones to, you know, your, your fridge at home probably has a smart capacity internet of things. The idea is, is that acceleration of that has also accelerated uh, the, the variable use of neuroimaging for other purposes as well. And so I think that's really why we see the explosion. The other thing is that 
And it's a great point because I was running around the world in 2001 and 2002 saying words to doctoral supervisors like neuromarketing and neuromanagement and neuroleadership. And they thought I was nutty. I mean, there was just no precedent for inter- interdisciplinary studies of this kind. Neuroscientists didn't care about or understand business theory. Business theorists and, and you know, commerce administrative scientists definitely didn't care about this kind of abstraction of neuroscience. And so the interdisciplinary space was also one that wasn't uh, well understood or uh, no one saw it yet as fruitful soil for new insights for business people. And so I think the other component, it's not just the technology, I think the other component is that we really had to, it had to take a while for, you know, what is the word I'm looking for? Renegades like me to, to get into the mainstream. Uh, and so it's sort of been a fringe interdisciplinary area of study that is finally getting somewhere uh, when it comes to other, you know, to people accepting it and being interested in it. And I know as an example, in 2004, there was this publication that went out about neuromarketing. And very immediately, a bunch of American consumer activists got together and said, marketers are going to be able to read our brains and read our minds. And we have to protect ourselves and protect our freedom of access to the market. And so almost immediately, the concept or and term neuromarketing got squashed, got quashed by, you know, though the movers and shakers who were very afraid of what people might be able to uncover. And of course, fast forward 10 years, and you realize, and now we're 14 years forward, you realize that just like hemispheric lateralization is a falsity, so is this notion that anyone's ever going to be able to read your brain or read your mind, because your brain is your creation. And that's what keeps people like me interested in hopping is the idea that you're no two brains are alike. So there's no way to systematically be able to deduce or reduce one person or any person's brain down to a simple series of tenants necessarily. And so that's what keeps it interesting. But it's also I think why it's taken a while for it to get into the mainstream and for us to really start to care as business people and as you know, just sort of, I want to say just everyday laymen even think that there is application for them in what I like to call practical neuroscience. So for laymen, let's let's dumb that down a little bit or simplify that a little bit for myself and other people. Basically, what you're saying, I want to see if I can restate this is because everyone's brain is wired a bit differently. Everyone has different experiences. So different parts of their brain are used for different cognitive functions. We, You don't believe that we'll ever be able to, in essence, read read people's minds and know what they're thinking. Is that is that a fair categorization of that part? Yeah, what's interesting, at least not with the technology the way that it is. So we don't have technology that good. Um, and very good categorization. Yes. Thank you, Matt. I'm not I don't know that we never will. But what's interesting is that, uh, in fact, you know, you probably heard this before. I sometimes say this on stage about um, you've gotten into an argument with your spouse and the argument, who knows what it was about, but ultimately the other person turns to you and goes, well, I don't know. I'm not a mind reader. Uh, in actual fact, better than any of our technology is each of us, because in a way that you're unaware of, it's happening in your subconscious in, in your mirror neuron system and in a bunch of your other emotional centers. But effectively, we all are mind readers. It's, an, it's, the, it's a human imperative is to try to understand other people and what they're thinking and what they and therefore be able to anticipate action and reaction and what they're likely to do in retaliation or, you know, what type of reaction they're likely to have. Uh, and so what's interesting is that you and, and your listeners and me and any other human you've ever met is probably a better mind reader than any neurofunctional or neuroimaging technology we have today. How much of that is brain processing and how much of that is 
processing that's done more in the gut, the lizard brain, so to speak. So the instincts that always seem to be right. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, the subconscious and that instinctual self are sort of one of the same as I conceptualize them. And how much of that is kind of conscious. I think, you know, we say that the conscious brain, you've probably heard the adage, and I know Hollywood has run away with this, that you're only using 10% of your brain. And the reason that we think that that became such a popular kind of a saying or statement or adage is that conscious brain patterning, conscious processing was thought to be 10%. And what we think now, and so that's why, you know, mainstream layman decided to run away with this idea. In actual fact, of course, you are using 100% of your brain. Every neuron that isn't constantly excited decides to reallocate itself to a new neural network. So your brain is very, every neuron is very opportunistic, we say. All to say that it constantly wants to be paid attention to and be excited and fed oxygen and glycogen and glucose. So every single neuron is constantly vying for uh, ac- action. It wants a piece of the action. So you're using 100% of your brain. We think that 10% of your brain is conscious and, to, and or did think. Now we know that's not true at all. You know, 20 years later, we started to say, well, it was 95% of your brain was subconscious and 5% was conscious. And then now we think it's probably closer to 1% conscious and 99% subconscious, which if laymen want to run away with that, then you're only using 1% of your brain. Of course, that's not the, it's a blasphemization of that research. But the idea is, is that your subconscious, and I don't call it the lizard brain, but you know, your subconscious and all of that neural networking that includes, as you quite rightly mentioned, your gut and a series of neurons that are in your gut and all of your peripheral central nervous system and so on, that really constitutes a huge component, the vast majority of your processing power. And so the short answer is, you know, yeah, most of what's happening to you is not consciously under your control. It's just like the computer. You see something on the screen, but there's a lot more happening under the hood Yeah, than meets the eye. How far does that analogy, does that metaphor go? So what we think is that if you're not from a neuroanatomical perspective, because there are actually a series, a nano layer of neurons called your cerebral cortex, and it's actually what makes us different than primates, as an example. But that cerebral cortex is what we what enables us to think about thinking, something called metacognition or meta-thinking or introspection. We can introspect and say, hey, how does my brain work, brain? That doesn't only just yield many, many incorrect answers, but it is a nano layer that sort of is on this surface of your brain. We think that that is more neuroanatomical than it is neurofunctional. All to say that you have, if your conscious brain in metrics, let's say, were to be a cubic foot, let's say, then we believe that your the 99% of your brain that is subconscious is in fact the size in capacity for and, and bandwidth for processing of the Milky Way, like the actual Milky Way. And so what that means is that there is a couple of real key takeaways there. One is that it goes deeper than we ever knew, almost like, uh, you know, um, astrophysicists finding out that the universe is expanding. Neuroscientists effectively continue to figure out that your subconscious is so expansive, we have yet to have experienced the depths of it. And so your subconscious is constantly expanding. But what it also means is that you have what we consider to be an infinitesimal capacity for uh, intelligence and new knowledge that is never ending. So almost an unexhaustible resource from a knowledge and wisdom and learning capacity. Now, what happens is that knowledge is just the memory of having learned something incorporated into a knowledge network. What happens is you lose the key at some point to that knowledge network, to that neural network, and that is effectively a memory problem. You'd never have a learning problem, though. So you 
basically very different than a computer, have an unbridled, untapped ability to learn. You can learn encyclopedic levels of things. Now, you won't have access to all of those neural networks because you lose the keys after a while. But basically, that is the depth of, I mean, that's two of the insights that we garner from the idea that, yeah, we're just largely these subconscious supercomputers that don't actually even know how much we can know. Well, the metaphor goes even deeper if you do have the memory, but just lose it because it's a bit like fragmentation on a, on a disk. So the computer becomes less and less efficient at finding what it needs to find because it can't remember where it put it. You need to reorganize your library, so to speak. And then suddenly things start, things start improving faster. Do you think, um, do you think human be do you think human beings build computers to in some way replicate or emulate themselves? Or do you think, are you one of the believers in more of a, uh, what's the, what's the terminology, the, the simulation theory? Wow. Uh, it's a good question. I've never really thought about it. You know, I'm married to a, a computer scientist actually who does development and programming for a living. And I don't, I don't know if that is sort of an, if it's a good analogy or if that's what effectively we're doing. I mean, I see them as just so different um, that I really never given much thought to that. I did like your earlier analogy, though, that, you know, if we reorganize the information, then we suddenly have new access to old, old insights or old knowledge. And one of the best examples of that is sometimes people will, you know, 50 years later, 40 years later, they'll smell an apple pie that, you know, using a, a, a spice, let's say, that their grandmother used to use. And they haven't smelled that in 45, 50, 60 years. And suddenly a, a whole bunch of memories come flooding back to them, you know, about their childhood and about Thanksgivings with their grandparents and whatever, whatever. And so you know yourself sort of that every now and then for random reasons, a memory that you had no immediate access to can be triggered because it's almost as though you were given the key to that neural network again. I've heard smell is the strongest because that was the first to evolve in, in essentially the things that we evolved from. Is that the case? Yeah, I think, well, so the olfactory bulb does smell and taste and is very highly developed, of course. Yeah, I think it's very strong connection to uh, the limbic structures that do encode long-term memory. It's not necessarily true for short-term memories, obviously. And I think anymore, some of that sensibility is changing a little bit because there is a lot more in the way of um, visual cues. And we have a lot more in the way, especially in uh, the marketing realm of auditory signals. So jingles, effectively, right? You hear a jingle, you remember your childhood, or you'll remember all the words to a song you didn't even realize you knew, right? All of a sudden, from 25 years ago, you hadn't heard that song. And all of a sudden, everything about it come come to the fore. So I think there are multiple I think and I and the other truth about that is that everyone's a little different there. So I know in my my world I have for whatever reason a dumbed down not very acute sense of smell and taste whereas there are other people that they call super tasters who are also in not surprisingly super smellers, people who have a heightened sense of both smell and taste. So I think it would be more true as an example for them than it would be for me. So everyone is a little bit different in that in, in kind of how they access their memories. We all needed poison tellers before we could write down the things we wanted to avoid. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> we need we need some superstars in that regard. So your your husband, you were saying he's into computer science. You've mentioned black box once or twice. What is your connection? What are your thoughts on artificial intelligence? Do you get called in to consult? Because in a lot of ways, when we talk about black boxes, we're talking about either the brain or or some type of human-derived intelligence platform, etc. Yeah, I don't do consulting anymore, but I, I did get a lot of calls a couple of years ago when AI started to really be a big deal, mostly from organizations in Silicon Valley who, or 
who were concerned about, if not their, you know, ability to program it, their ability to keep their jobs was actually the real concern. So a lot of HR organizations, that kind of thing, it's kind of died down in the last year and a half or so. I think it really hit like a pin a peak kind of frenzy of interest. And then I haven't really heard much more about it from there. I think, you know, there are a lot of parallels, but the truth is, is that it still doesn't, I mean, there's still no AI that approximates a human. And that's, again, like just the amazing depth of care of capacity for character that is so hard for any computer scientist to characterize. Well, it's nearly impossible to model a brain. There's more um, whatever neurons in a brain than there are atoms in the entire universe or something. Yeah. Something there, something thereabouts. I think if you want to try to emulate a human brain, you probably have to do it differently or you'll never have enough computing power. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it too, you know, in a computer, you wouldn't be able to spontaneously have a subcomponent die off or another one born and then reallocate themselves neuroplastically to infinitesimal levels of and numbers of neural networks. So in other words, there's almost no limit to the number of neural networks that a single neuron can can play in, can be a part of. And so, I mean, yeah, the complexity and permutations and combinations are far, far exceed the capacity currently anyway of any computing technology that we have, which again, I mean, another reason why I just love it. And so, yeah, I mean, you probably have currently operating about 100 billion neurons. And at your time of when you were born, you had 200 billion neurons. So on the one hand, you've pruned neurons in order to learn and to grow and to develop and, you know, become more wise and be more skilled. But you also had about 200 billion connections when you were born. And now you have something way, way in excess of that. And so what we do as we grow and learn and become better and better at being better neurocognitively, we prune away neurons because they're dead weight, but we actually lay, which are gray matter. And we actually lay down way more in the way of networks and connections, which are the white matter. And so it's the white matter that is the seat of all kind of wisdom and knowledge. And yeah, I mean, just infinitesimal capacity, unbelievable capacity to create new knowledge networks on an ongoing continual basis. I mean, you and I talking right now, both of us are changing our neural networks in response to each other and and neuroplastically altering what we know and how we know it and how we access it. Do we have any idea how that happens? At the bio, like sort of, you know, nano level, certainly we understand, right, that there are kind of communications that happen in this electrical activity between neurons. And so if two neurons start to associate together because they're linked somehow in proximate neural network, then all of a sudden they become more or less connected. So as an example, I might have a neural network for the name Matt. And I might have a different neural network for the name ward or for the word ward. And what my brain has to do is say, well, the word mat and the word ward are now associated as one. And we actually start to develop a schema for what that means to us. So the, the whole word becomes a, a concept. And that concept actually is the embodiment of a person, which is you in this case. But the idea there is that all of a sudden two conne- connections had to happen and networks had to interface. And as they did interface, we created new neural connections. So literally, I have synaptic clefts now that in you know the process of of just discovering who you were as an example that had to connect the name the first name the last name the concept the you know voice the sort of human constellation of things that I do and I do know about you as an example all of those synaptic clefts had to fuse effectively had to come together to create one known concept of Matt Ward so I search on Google for shoes and I see a commercial on TV and suddenly something else pops up and 
the the tracking cookies essentially are looking at what I'm doing. They're pairing together these two different actions. And they're saying, there's probably something related to these two. Similar concept? Yeah, yeah very similar. And that you're basically associations between any two things start to become literally neuroanatomically fused in a way that allows our our creation of construct and of concept. Yep. The best the best metaphor I've ever heard for the brain is it's like a snowy hill. You're sledding down it and the more times you sled down it, the deeper it gets. And the harder it is to get out of those predetermined ruts, so to speak. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we often say that the brain is a hardwired haven. Or I don't know if it's we. I say that. I don't know anyone else who does. But the idea is that, I, you know, a lot of H's, alliteration, but it's a hardwired haven. And it's the idea that everything the brain can automate, it will. Everything that it can sort of, by the time it's seen something a second time, and there's a reason for that, back up one step, it is to say that the brain is... Uh, tries to automate everything that it can and because it is very expensive to run. So your brain's using up to 40% of all the molecules of oxygen that you're breathing in any given breath. And it's using up to 40% of all of the, all of the calories that you put in your mouth. Um, which I often joke is one heck of a grocery bill, right? And so your human brain is very expensive to operate. And for that reason, it, it knows this. Your brain says, I am a very expensive, fuel inefficient thing. I've got to try to be more economical in my functioning. And so what it does is it relegates everything it can, not just to the subconscious, but to automation. And so that's why we call it a hardwired haven. Um, but the idea is, is that it'll automate absolutely everything. And basically, by the time you've seen something twice, your brain considers itself an expert and says, oh, we've seen it before, allocate to this schema or schemata or known process or known neural network. And then that conjures up a bunch of other associations and so on. And so, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you're driving down the road and all this, you know, you're daydreaming and you're thinking about the grocery list or whatever else you need to get done tomorrow and yesterday and two days from now. And suddenly you realize you've been in la la land and, but you know, who was driving the car if you were daydreaming? And the truth is, is that there are a bunch of basal ganglia, they're called. There's a series of nerve clusters in your brain that effectively are, they're in your subconscious that take over anything that you've done before, anything you've seen before. By the time you've done it twice, the second time your brain says, oh, no, 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 we're not going to spend oxygen and calories on this again. That learning curve is over. Automate it. And so um, it starts to automate everything that it possibly can. So exactly like that, you end up exactly like your analogy, a very good description, you end up with very rote, very, um, I want to say, you know, high, highly stable neural networks that are hard to disrupt. They're hard to take apart and to reprogram and to change because they're so practiced. They're so automatic that it is a challenge to consciously undo them in any way, shape or form. And I mean, that obviously is the root. It's the etiology of all addiction, right? Habit forming behaviors where it's just very hard to deprogram ourselves. Despite how people feel, I get a lot of calls from senior citizens who say, help me with better memory. Despite how it feels, we actually as humans are not programmed to forget at all. We're programmed to infinitely continue to grow our knowledge network. If we could forget, we wouldn't have addiction as a problem and we wouldn't have trauma or PTSD or many psychosomatic ailments because we could kind of selectively say, I, I no longer know that. I no longer remember that. Um, and every day would be rose colored and all horizons would look bright and sun filled. And so we are actually a hardwired haven, which is to say that, yeah, exactly like your analogy, we hardwire in everything we possibly can, despite what's good for us, despite what we might prefer. 
I wanted to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Carta. As a founder, investor, a startup employee, you know that most of the wealth in the tech industry, it comes from equity. It's not from salary. But how you manage equity, how we manage equity, it's broken. It can be complicated to figure out who owns how much of a startup and to share that important information and documents between companies and VCs. And for VCs to see how investments are performing real time, that's incredibly important for raising your next fund. Many investors and companies still use spreadsheets, paper certificates, and slow-moving service providers to keep that kind of information on hand and to share with prospective investors. These tools and services that are used to manage equity, they're dated, they're slow, and it's funny given that VCs and CEOs are the ones creating the future. Picarda fixes the cap table equity management problem. They offer cap table management, valuations, full-service fund administration, all in one platform. More than 600,000 employee shareholders from companies and VCs at firms like Slack, Coinbase, Flexport, August Capital, Founders Fund, all these guys and more, they use Carta to manage hundreds of billions of dollars in equity. To simplify how you manage equity, use Carta. Get 10% off today at carta.com syndicate. It'll help you with simplifying the cap table, which will make it easier for you to raise money as a startup and easier for investors to get on board. Carta.com syndicate. Are you excited about the prospect of psychedelics? It seems like taking a snow globe and shaking it up, you can at least reduce the the depth of those trenches. Um, what do you mean by psychedelics? Like like, um, like psychoactive drugs? LSD, MDMA, psilocybin. They seem to be doing really, really well in terms of curing addiction by changing the changing the underlying pathways that get activated. So yeah. essentially filling up the filling up the tread so your sled's not stuck where it was stuck. Yeah. No, it's an interesting concept. I don't know. And I have I'll be honest and say I don't I haven't read much about that. I've sort of steered clear of it. Partly because uh, one of the things that I've sort of chosen to focus on is what I call the non-pathologized brain. But the idea that I've sort of steered clear because there's so much depth of literature in psychopathology, right? In psychological and psychiatric ailments and treatments and diagnostics and so on. So I sort of steer clear of that. So it's a really good question. I don't I don't know the answer to. I know you've talked a bit about aging in the brain <laughs> and the six, the six different types of aging and how it can affect the workforce, et cetera. Can you get into that a little bit more in terms of what happens as we age, the positives, the negatives, and then what we can do about it? Wow. Yeah, it's a huge question. I mean, one of the things that is true is that as we age, our accuracy actually decreases. And again, going back to that hardwired haven, what it means is that we actually are experts in everything we've seen more than once, right? Our brain says, okay, automate that. We become what we consider to be an expert in it. And the challenge with experts and with the automation is that the more automated something is, the more um, you know crystallized that neural network is, the lower the the accuracy is. So all of a sudden, we what we we'll, what we trade off in our neural connections in the interest of saving oxygen and gluc- gluc- glycogen, uh, oxygen and glycogen and glucogen and glucose, etc., is accuracy. So we will automate in the interest of having it be easy, but then we don't mind. We'll trade off the levels of accuracy. Like we'll, we'll say, listen, I don't mind not being correct as long as it's easy for me. And so that's one of the things that happens over time is we see as an example that older people have basically seen it all before. And so they have a bunch of cognitive schema and schemata for everything. doesn't matter what you show them. They can conjure up kind of a constellation of theories and thoughts and pro formas that fit to this, you know, whatever, whatever the challenge is, the problem, whatever the issue or, you know. Um, but the challenge is, is that they're very often what they kind of have traded off for expertness or wisdom is often at the cost of 
of accuracy. And so we see that confidence in one's answers and in one's knowledge goes up, uh, but accuracy actually goes down. So what it means is that the human brain is making more mistakes as it gets older, but we're just more confident psychologically that that it, that we're not that we're not making more mistakes, that we are experts and that we know the answers. Um, and so that's very interesting is this fallacy of the expert. That's one thing that changes. However, as you can imagine, what we would consider to be called emotional intelligence actually improves and increases over the life course. So there's a whole other subset of neurons involved in social processing and interpersonal dynamics and you know mediating needs in something called theory of mind, which is the ability to put yourself in another person's shoes and see the world through their eyes effectively. And so we get much better at that over time. So as the brain ages, it lays down a lot more in the way of the emotional and interpersonal human intelligences and uh, actually starts to sort of quell and economize on the knowledge, wisdom, and, and new learning pathways. So it becomes sort of an expert and automates a lot of its tacit knowledge and a lot of its rote knowledge. And then it doesn't actually learn any new or dynamic or complex knowledge. Uh, instead, it focuses more on the human aspect of things. And so we see that as an advantage, you know, there are obviously advantages and disadvantages to both, but that the brain sort of over time, it flips what it prioritizes paying attention to as well. Is there something we can do about this? I know there, there's a saying in a lot of industries, you could say it in politics, you can say it in science, especially is innovations happen when the incumbents die. So basically, a lot of scientists are waiting for the leading players to die so that they can publish their research because the incumbents are so set in their ways that they're not willing to change or think beyond the status quo. Is there a way to get around this? Do teams need to be structured so you have younger, I mean, it sounds obvious when you say it, but that you have younger brains and older brains in some way collaborating? Yeah, uh, it could be that. It could be just, an, it doesn't have to be chronological age necessarily. So, um, I mean, there is a difference between, uh, you know, someone who's three and someone who's 80. But the truth is, is that, uh, you know, again, if everyone's brain is their own creation, then you don't necessarily have to uh, have someone younger in the room. What we do notice and all the literature corroborates is that what we're looking for in any given team, as an example, in your example, is heterogeneity of mindset and of knowledge set and of skill set, so on, even maybe of role function, of experience, maybe of age. Sure, age is good too. But the idea there is that the more heterogeneity there is in a decision-making team or in a functional team of some kind, the better off the solution will be, the better quality the solution will be. I actually did my second dissertation in that exact thing, funny enough, is um, the, the heterogeneity of teams and their knowledge and how they are, what makes them the, the best, what creates for the best quality solutions to problems. But yeah, so that's all to say that you don't really need, uh, age isn't always the biggest factor. And then to your sort of first part of that question, how hard is it to change? It's not like any good habit, it's not impossible to change, uh, but the person in question has to want to. And so that is very typically the challenge with older workers is, and, and when, as an example, the younger guard or a different management want uh, innovation to happen or change to happen, it's challenging to uh, create change because it can't really be something that is forced extrinsically. It has to be something that the individual, at the individual level, the person is motivated to experience intrinsically. And so therein lies, I mean, just a huge sort of a chasm when it comes to getting from here to there, right? Uh, and bringing a workforce along with you or specifically any given human resource, you have to really, and, and that human capital has to want 
to change its existing neural networks. It has to want to change for some reason. Um, and very often that person in question does not because it is an expensive thing to do is to rewire one's brain. And I, I mean, it, literally, it's, it costs a lot of money because it means a lot more in the way of sleep and learning curves and time and food. It just costs a lot of energy and, and glucose and downtime, right? Ability to kind of... Re what we forget, I guess, as kids is that rewiring one's, wiring one's brain, rewiring one's brain is actually a very taxing thing to do. You need a lot of sleep and rest and downtime. And so it's a lot easier to not do that, uh, which is why very typically we see with older workers and older human resources, older human capital, they don't just believe that they are experts and much wiser than everyone else, which as we know is mostly a fallacy, but they also are not motivated to change because it's uncomfortable and expensive and they don't, why would they? Just based off of the, based off of the neuroscience of it, I think you can extrapolate this out to a lot of different areas, both the intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, but then also the kind of size expertise and uh, static versus dynamic nature. Do you think this is why all countries, all governments, all civilizations eventually fall? Wow, it's a good question, Matt. I don't know. It's much bigger than I usually think. Um, I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, lots of different reasons probably. Um, to your point, I mean, any given, what is the word I want to use? Any given tradition of management, so whether that be in the church or in the government or in a given organization, I think do eventually, and, and this is another thing I looked at in my research, was the analogy of almost like a, neuro, a very uh, crystallized, you know, concretized neural network to the organization. They become organizations that pervade for long periods of time become highly routinized, which gives way to high levels of institutionalization, which gives rise to high levels of bureaucracy, bureaucracy and bureaucratization, which is actually very not very much different than our human brain from the perspective that they basically become these like there's their processes become not just habit, but rule of law and rule of function. And it's very similar in in our brains is that, you know, things that are practiced that are habitual become rule of function, rule of law. Anyway, I'll just say that with that, no different than any given hardwired neural network neural pattern, is that there does become something we call uh, high levels of polarization of thought. And so what ends up happening is that, and you see this in old institutions where, you know, in order to get inducted or in order to become part of that institution, you actually have to go through, if not an initiation process of some kind, you, you effectively get dogmatically rewired. Like you have to, you have to drink the Kool-Aid. Uh, you have to be brainwashed into believing and thinking the way that they think. And so I think with that, uh, you know, I don't know if it answers your question or if it's, but part of, part of the answer must be that yes, old organi older organizations become institutionalized just like the human brain. And, and I think what happens there is that you see high levels of polarization of thought, which basically is the opposite of what we mentioned earlier, which is high levels of heterogeneity of thought and of mindset and of skill set and of knowledge set leading to better solutions to things. So we're, we're definitely becoming more polarized as well. How do you think about social media? How do you think about the fact that you search for something on YouTube and every next video is a little bit more extreme? Is that true? It, so go and look up something. I remember I, I like I like Joe Rogan. He has a pretty solid podcast. And I was listening to one and it was a bit it was a bit interesting. It was a scientist that had an alternative theory. And that's pretty common with scientists. A hundred percent of what they're trying to do is uh, essentially prove someone else wrong because that's how you earn your stripes and that's how you do something interesting. Well, each video after that got a little bit more extreme. And then I noticed that it was suggesting an Alex Jones video from Infowars. And I was like, wait a second, what happened here? And 
I think the algorithms are very much inclined to do that because once you've seen something, until it's more extreme, it's not interesting. It's not exciting. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that, so I would I don't have a good answer for it. But yeah, that's very interesting. I didn't know that that was true. Yeah, I know. I know with filter bubbles, the same thing happens. Where if you take a group of people that have X Y Z belief and put them in a room and they all have similar beliefs, they all come out of it being a little bit more extreme because they that's how you stand out. What are what are some what are some myths about the brain and neuroscience that most people have that you want to disprove? Oh, um, well, one of them we talked about, which is, you know, that it is that your brain is very largely subconscious. Most people don't don't really think that and they really they think that they have all control and all agency, and that they have access to more of their brain than they do. So I think that's one of the first fallacies. Um, and do you believe in free will, uh, not in a religious sense, but do you believe in free will? Yeah, um, I do to some extent. I think it tempered by the fact that you know. So you're. I really like. There's a D- Daniel uh, Siegel. I, can, I think that's how you pronounce his name. And he says that the brain. This is his quote: "The brain uses the mind to create itself." And what that means is that your subconscious is constantly directing the part of your brain that pays attention to things and that decides what it's going to pay attention to. And what that allows then is that the very thing that you're paying attention to was decided by a part of you that you don't have access to. And so what that means is that at the theoretical level, while it is your will, I mean, I believe your subconscious to be part of you, uh, it is not necessarily will that you consciously decided. Now, you do have the ability at the conscious level to confirm or deny. So you have the ability to say, no, I won't pay attention to that, and then code switch back to the thing that you wanted to pay attention to again. You're working against a huge amount of processing power, a huge, uh, another, it's almost like a secondary processor that is much more powerful than your conscious self. So in that sense, I don't, I really don't believe that you have very, we have very good ability. Our conscious selves have very good ability to override our subconscious selves. But again, hard to prove. And I just look at the numbers, like just mathematically, it's very unlikely that you are consciously doing anything your subconscious didn't sort of preordain or dictate. Now, I that's all more or less yours, though, right? Like, it's all you. So yeah, yeah, it's it's hard because people define themselves, they define themselves by their thoughts. And I don't know if you're into into meditation at all, or looking into consciousness or have any theories on the subject. I do. Yeah. I mean, I what I, one of the things I, you know, again, with the brain that it has that uses the mind to create itself this idea that you li- so you literally become your thoughts, right? We are all very comfortable with the idea that you know, you are what you eat at the sort of nutrient and macro level, you understand that molecule wise, you literally become what you eat. We are even as a, you know, collective starting to get to this idea that like, you really are the company you keep, right? Because you start to become a lot more like them. Um, But the thing I think that is still very abstract for people, and it's not concretized in any known tangible way is this idea that you literally are the thoughts that you think and that you are what you the thoughts you think don't just neurofunctionally change who you are like my example earlier with Matt Ward becoming neurofunctionally part of a similar network but what that physically meant was that synapses had to connect and so what's very interesting anyway for me is that yeah you thoughts are very very important not just neurofunctionally but neuroanatomically I would argue that the thoughts the thoughts aspect probably overrides the five closest friends. I think the five closest friends thing is essentially the thoughts that you surround yourself with. If you're with smart, cool people, they have smart, cool thoughts, they live smart, cool lives, and they're doing 
doing things and making you think things. I bet you that would, if you were really able to look into the differences, I bet you one drives the other and not not both being equally important. I was saying that basically, uh, neuroanatomically, you create yourself. And so you do that through thoughts. And so what's just mind boggling when you conceptualize the depth of it is that literally what you think you become physically, neuro neuroanatomically, you build an organ that literally becomes the thoughts you think. And that just, I mean, the depths of that and the ramifications thereof still continue to keep me up at night. Like that's the stuff I just find endlessly fascinating. Yeah, it scares the crap out of you because we have way too many thoughts. Yeah, I was saying we had the technological difficulties. I was saying, I think that that even trumps the five closest friends because I think the five closest people are more or less just influencing the majority of the thoughts that you have. So oh, that their, their, income, their income's the cause. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what is the chicken and what's the egg? But certainly the company that you keep, and to your point, there is that new research that shows you're effectively the collection of your five, the people you spend the most time with. And you know what's interesting about that is that when you really get looking around at who you spend the most time with, you realize that it's not your kids, it's not even your spouse, it's the people at work. You're spending the most of your wakeful hours likely, or at least, at least one if not more of those five are not people you would have chosen for yourself. They're people that you you work with. And I find that that also very interesting. But to your point, yes, that they are they're influencing the self-talk that happens. They're influencing the script and the narrative that you're playing in, in, again, even though it feels like it's in the back of your mind all the time, that script is actually still in your conscious brain. And yeah, that it's constantly, I mean, they're influencing it. You're letting them in. There's a symbiotic relationship between what you pay attention to and therefore what you allow and who you pay attention to and therefore what you allow to alter that internal narrative and script that runs through your head all the time, which is your thoughts and those thoughts become you. And if you want to get even deeper, you can look into Elizabeth Blackburn's Nobel Prize winning research, essentially showing that your thoughts not only influence your brain, they also influence your telomeres and your general health and longevity. Because when you're positive, you seem to do better. And when you're negative, your telomeres shrink, you do not live as long. It's a, it's fascinating stuff. Um, you know, you know what ahead. else it is? Um, well, just to build on that is the microbiome is new research that's coming out. And the idea that, you know, effectively, you have what the WHO now thinks is likely to be classified as an organ, but is all the microbiota in your gut. And what we what we're finding is that and this is just, you know, unbelievable. But the idea is, is that that microbiota sends and receives signals to your brain. And that means that you aren't just communicating with your gut, but that your gut decides a lot of your stress levels, it decides your weight and your weight management, it decides your energy levels, it decides every your immunity is mostly in your gut. And so all of this is also predicated on effectively your your mindset and your state of mind. Uh, and so, yeah, correct. amazing. Just amazing. I would add mitochondria is there as well. It's a body that's not actually belonging to you, that's living inside of you. It's the power cells. From what from what I can see in the research I'm finding now, I see mm -hmm. a lot of the, the neurodegenerative diseases, a lot of the long-term chronic diseases being caused by primarily long-term inflammation in the gut, in the gut apt, uh, activating certain gene, uh, essentially certain genes within individuals that would not necessarily get activated. So essentially, you're ending up with cancer, you're ending up with ALS, you're ending up with Parkinson's. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in large part due to inflammation in the gut and what you ate. Yeah, I mean, it's an epigenetic-centric view of, of it all, but absolutely, yeah, sure. I mean, the, I, I don't not just inflammation either. I think, you know, what's the chicken and what's the egg there is the idea that, you, you yes, part of, you know, what you're eating, again, it's like that five people thing. Well, you chose those five people, but your mindset chose those five people and your mindset chose what to put in your mouth, right? And so, 
I mean, ultimately that's playing into certainly the literally the micronutrients and macronutrients you're using to build the building blocks of yourself, of your body. But then there's also that, uh, I want to say almost more abstract component, which is that that in turn affects the thoughts that you're having and the mind, the, the state of mind, the emotions that you have, the right, all of that. I mean, it's all sort of cyclical and interrelated and symbiotic. And yeah, the ramifications when you really get looking into it, the stuff that the cutting edge is figuring out is absolutely mind blowing. And it gets uh, it gets a bit trippy when you think about it like that. But everything is a flywheel and flywheels have a tendency to accelerate. So yeah. it's something we don't we don't think near enough about. Yeah. Outside yeah. of your own work, what technologies or industries are you most excited about and why? Ooh, that's a good question. Technology or industry? Yeah, go for it. Um, I'm really excited about self-driving cars. That's just a, I mean, I don't know why. I just am. Have you ridden in so. one? No. Would you? Yeah, of course. Absolutely, I would. I think that human error, especially as a neuroscientist, I see that human error, I, we're just so rife with it, right? Our accuracy is just so low, unfortunately. And so you can just conceptualize that a world without human error on the roads is just a lifesaver. Um, and if you and people get all bent out of shape as an example about air, air travel, which of course, I spend most of my days on the road. And by the road, I mean, in the air. And what's interesting is that if you look at, you know, passenger miles or traveler miles, injury free, there's way, way, way huge multiplier. It's safer to be in an aircraft that's heavily regulated and has a wonderfully and medically sound person driving it, flying it than than you, than any one of us. So I just I conceive of, you know, safer roads and easier, more efficient transit and travel and and if you think about the opportunity cost, I don't know, you know, what, what your days look like, Matt, but mine are so busy that if there is an opportunity to do work or be productive or even have a minute to yourself to meditate or visualize or think while not trying to drive, so on. I mean, the opportunity cost of that time wasted is also another thing I'm excited about. So I'm very excited on a personal level for self-driving cars and on a on a aggregate level. I just think it'll mean safer, safer travel, safer transit, less deaths, less injuries. Driving is one of the single most dangerous things you can do. And so I think that's very exciting. Um, I don't know. I mean, industries that I'm interested in, it's not really an industry that I'm excited about. I probably have a really good answer. I think about all the time and just not coming to me right now. It's okay. The self-driving is huge, especially we talked about it before, but traffic, what stresses you out more than traffic? What gives you more negative thoughts? I can't think of too many things. Traffic pisses us all off and it, it makes us all a little bit worse. What about in terms of technologies you're worried about? Um, that's a good one. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm still worried about, it's not actual high tech, but I'm worried about a lot of the human synthetic uh, material and a lot of the GMO technology that we see in our food product and in our production. And, you know, there's I think there's a really good Netflix special that I haven't watched, but I think it talks a little bit about I think it's what is it called? Stuff or sniff. Say it again. Oh, sorry. We might be talking about two different things. Smelly or it's something like that. But basically it's about the chemical warfare that we've unleashed on ourselves through our food and through our textiles and in our homes and in our air quality and everything. I mean, just just what we've sort of done in our manufacturing in order to manufacture for mass production. And I think that continues to concern me is what we're doing to our food sources and supply and uh, certainly to get it onto shelf and increase its shelf life. And um, and that would even, you know, we think of things as or even in the organic aisle, we think of it as a little bit healthier, but even there we're starting to see uh, high levels of, if not GMO, you know, seed hybridization and all kinds of actual tinkering and tampering with our product. And I, so that technology, like seed technology, uh, genetic modification technology, 
and then just synthetics manufacturing. So, you know, all kinds of plastics in everything that you're eating and so on. I think that continues to concern me. It's probably the, if there's a concern I have, it's that that technology that continues to accelerate that I think is uh, poses a, a, one of the single greatest threats to us as as healthy individuals. I don't think as a civilization so much as just individuals who can sort of proceed through life expecting a long life expectancy and, and proceeding through life healthily. I think that is probably our single, should be our single greatest concern. I think those two tie, tie in together civilization and personal health, because if we all become the average American, eventually we're all obese enough that we can't have kids. And that that's incredibly problematic. It's it's kind con, uh, controversial to say, but I I don't think it's actually controversial. In fact, if you think about it, there's uh there's some major problems with the world. We've had a couple of interesting interesting folks on talking about talking about some of those issues. If you guys go to disruptors.fm and search for Jason Prawl, or if you look into any any of those type of topics, you'll find some some pretty interesting stuff. Bryn, mm-hmm. I have two last questions for you. The first is I want a bold prediction 10, 20 years out. It can be anything. Wow. Um I wish I had known this question was coming. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's so many. I've heard so many futurists talk recently. Obviously, I think we'll have self-driving cars, which is amazing. I think we will have better access to personal, to your question on epigenetics, um, to actual personal health proformas and profiles, the idea that you'll be able to, through blood or saliva or even hair follicles, like the idea that you'll be able to have a lot better read of your genetic code and therefore, you know, your likelihood for certain things. Uh, And I think that will be revolutionary in sort of moving away from a healthcare system that is centralized and or for profit and or, you know, wherever. I mean, it's this great big institutions with a bunch of accredited doctors. I think healthcare and, and a lot of not not medical care, but health care will actually become and therefore self-care will become through technology a lot more readily accessible and available and not just the auspice of very senior, very heavily trained medical practitioners. So I'm excited for that to move into the mainstream and for people to have better understanding and ready access to, you know, how to take care of themselves better effectively and and to defend their health. I mean, before you get sick, you're able to, you know, forewarned is forearmed, as they say. So I think that will be very exciting. And I bet we'll see something. And this is a like, I've just heard through the Silicon Valley folk I hang out with, but the idea that fairly soon you won't need, I don't even understand how this would work, but you won't have a smartphone or mobile device, you'll be able to embed it somehow in your human self. Um, And the idea there is like, I don't know if it's a microchip or, you know, whatever. I mean, hologram, I have no idea. But the idea is, is that um, that us, we as owners of technology will start to become that technology. I think we'll start to see much more in the way of symbiosis between humans and their immediate mobile devices and their immediate sort of use of technology. I could agree with both of those. Definitely. Sick care sucks. Let's all stay healthy. Yeah. Bryn, where's the best place for people to find you and learn a little bit more about you and what you do? Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Uh, super simple. All in one place. Just go to Dr. Bryn, D-R-B-R-Y-N-N.com. Dr. Bryn, thanks for coming today. Thanks for tuning in, guys. If you guys have enjoyed this, you know what to do. Disruptors.fm. Make sure you subscribe. And if you can't support us on Patreon, that's totally fine. Just share this out with a friend if you think people would enjoy it. I'm sure they would. This was, this was a really fun one. Thanks for coming today, Bryn. Thanks. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. Awesome. And cheers, guys. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. 
You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.